This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, we'll hear an interview with Dr. Brad Wilcox about his 2011 BYU campus devotional, His Grace is Sufficient. After the interview, we'll hear the entire devotional. I'm speaking today with Dr. Brad Wilcox, a professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture. He's a frequent speaker for various youth and adult education programs. Among other books, he's also best known for being the author of The Continuous Atonement and for a devotional address entitled His Grace is Sufficient, which has connected with many, many people. In fact, I was just looking today, just before we started, you gave this address in July of 2011, seven years later as we speak today. Nearly half a million views on the BYU website and over half a million on YouTube. Were you surprised with how this address connected with people? I was surprised because it was a summer devotional, and that means that they do it in a smaller building on campus, a smaller room. They don't expect many people to come, and not many people came. So I was surprised that it did receive the attention that it received, but grateful for it because I think it has helped a lot of people. When you are invited to present at a campus-wide devotional, obviously there's, I suppose, some pressure to do a good job, but especially you want it to be meaningful. How did you even come to this topic? When I first was invited, I thought, it's summertime. I think I'll talk about keeping a good sense of humor. And, you know, I figured, hey, we're right in the middle of spring and summer terms, and, and I'll, just, I'll just try to do something light. But, boy, the minute I thought of that, I just felt very prompted that I needed to speak about grace. And so I switched gears, and uh, I was grateful that they don't assign a topic. They let the presenter wrestle mm. with which topic is going to be best given the circumstances. And I'm grateful that they did allow me to choose the topic because in the end, it really has been an important stepping stone for many people. And afterwards, after we discuss some of the points that you bring up, I would love to talk about how you hear about connections and how that's affected people. One of the first things you do is you tell a story of a student who wanted to talk to you and said, I just don't get grace. Yeah, the student was a, a young lady who came in to visit with me, but the reason she was visiting with me is because as a ecclesiastical leader with university students, I noticed a pattern, and that's what first got me interested in the topic at all, because students would come, they would repent, they would confess, they would share their struggles, they'd feel better. But then they'd go out and mess up again, and then they'd come back and talk to me about their struggles and feel better. And about three or four times through that cycle, I just found that they would give up, either literally, like stop coming to church meetings or mm. stop praying, or they would just give up in that they would just kind of jump hoops without really feeling the emotions of what they were going through. And I started thinking, we need to focus more on grace. They understand the idea of forgiveness. They mm -hmm. understand that they can repent and that they can be forgiven. But they don't understand how the atonement of Jesus Christ and the grace that flows from that atonement can actually help them in this process of self-betterment, this process of being changed and being 
transformed. And it was in that context that then this young lady came to me and said, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's because they're thinking of this not as a process, but as a one-time thing? I think that's part of it. They think of forgiveness as a one-time thing. You know, I've got to save up all my problems and sins, and then I've got to just dump them once and for all and never go back and make another mistake. Not only is that an unrealistic view of of how often we sin and need to repent, but it's also an unrealistic view of repentance because repentance is not just the path to forgiveness, but it's also the path to perfection. It's the path to becoming better. It's the path to becoming more like Christ. And when we think of repentance, not so much as a punishment for doing something bad, but rather as a step toward becoming better, then I think we're in the right mindset. One girl, said to me, not the girl we're talking about, but another girl said to me, I always feel like if I sin, then I've slipped from being 100% to 80%. And then (laughs) forgiveness means I can get back to 100%. And I said to her, who the heck is at 100%? Nobody starts at 100%. We're all at 50%. And when we repent, then we learn to be 51%. And when we (laughs) repent again, we learn to be 52%. And I think if we can keep the eye on learning, that's the blessing of the atonement, Steve, is that it allows us to be educated by our poor choices rather than condemned by them. And have that be how we define our lives. Yeah. This girl that did come talk to me, She was saying, well, I know I'm supposed to do my best. I know I'm supposed to do all I can, and then Christ will make up the difference. And I think too often people get it in their head that Christ's grace somehow supplements their works or their works somehow supplement Christ's grace as if we have to meet some sort of minimum height requirement to get into heaven. Yeah, I am trying to help people understand that it's not about height. It's about growth. As she learned that, as she started realizing, oh, there's not a part I have to do first, because then we always feel like there's no way we can ever do what we need to do to be worthy of grace. But when she realized that Christ is willing to meet us where we are and take us from here to where we can be. So the image I get in mind is that we feel like we've run our mile and we collapse just before the finish line. We're inches away. Jesus, Christ drags us Jesus, across. Please. But the truth is our race is pointless without what he's done. And we can't even make one step without him. And so if we can continually remember that he's not waiting for us at the finish line, but rather he's with us every step of the journey, then it gives us a great deal of hope. I know it did for that young lady as she realized that there wasn't a a minimum requirement that needed to be met before God would help her. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland once spoke and said, come as you are, when he spoke about coming to Christ. He says, come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. And I love that phrase because that's grace. Don't expect to stay that way. I think many Christians start to think of grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card or permission to procrastinate and sin with no repercussions. That's not it. I think that's a very surface view of Mm -hmm. grace. I think what Elder Holland said about 
come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. I love that because it tells us that change is the goal. See, a lot of people say, oh, well, because of grace, then I don't have to change. Or what I believe is the lie of this generation, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. I think grace is not just about God loving us just the way we are. Grace is also about God loving us enough to not leave us just the way we are, but be willing to help us and transform us. So is the implication that if we actually understand and connect with God through the grace of God, isn't it just a natural effect that some change will happen if, if we really are connected to that? Yes, but it's that connection that needs to be seen as part of grace. The Hebrew word that was translated as grace means goodwill or favor given with compassion. Well, no wonder Christians grabbed that word and said this describes God's goodwill, God's favor, and God's compassion. But as our view of grace expands, we understand that it's not just a description of God's attributes, but it's how he connects with us, how we can engage with him as we strive to attain those same attributes. So that there is a power in the grace of God, both to forgive and to help us start over, but also a power to help us or draw us along in that road of to improvement change or changing. Us, to change our very hearts. I think power is a wonderful word. I often tell students if they get to grace in the scriptures and they don't understand what it means, replace it with power or enabling power. Mm. And usually the concept, the idea, is then being expressed a little more clearly to them. You know, you mentioned a young man who contacted you uh, in an email, and this is actually, I think, kind of heartbreaking, this particular understanding that he has. He said, one young man wrote me the following, I know God has all power, and I know he will help me if I'm worthy, but I'm just never worthy enough to ask for his help. I want Christ's grace, but always find myself stuck in the same self-defeating and impossible position. Yeah, because people see worthiness as flawlessness, and it's not. Worthiness is honesty, being honest with God, being honest with church leaders, being honest with yourself. And if we're honest and we're trying, then that can define worthiness. Surely one day, yes, worthiness will mean flawlessness, but not right now. I think worthiness is too often defined as flawlessness and as a prerequisite for receiving God's help. When in reality, as Elder Holland said, come as you are. Yeah. Come as you are. And as long as you're willing to be honest, I often have said that the only sin, the atonement, the power of Christ's atonement can't reach is a hidden sin. As we try to hide, then we put ourselves in a place where we refuse to engage with Christ mm. in this process of betterment. But if we are willing to engage with him, then if we're honest and if we're trying, then he can and will change us. And it's paradoxical that people struggle with an idea of worthiness to approach God when the root of that word, to be of worth, 
It's innate. It's innate because God made us. Yeah. You know, I think of that and I think of a a young man who said to me, I'm struggling with with some issues with pornography. And he said, I just have, have stopped praying because I'm so embarrassed to go to God. I says, I've got to get this fixed and then I'll start praying again. I said, oh, my goodness, that's like saying, well, I broke my arm, but I don't want to go see a doctor. I'll get this all fixed, and then I will go to the doctor and tell him everything that happened. I said, come on, there's nothing that you can hide from God because he sees it all. So it's not like he doesn't know this is happening. We don't pray because we're worthy. We pray because we need help. And we don't partake of the sacrament because we are perfect. We do it because we're willing to be perfected. I like a quote that you end with. In fact, I think you drew your title from this quote from Neil Maxwell. Do you want to read it? Or no, I just go quote ahead. It to you? I love um, it. Okay. Now may I speak to those buffeted by false insecurity who, though laboring devotedly, have recurring feelings of falling forever short. This feeling of inadequacy is dot, 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 normal. (laughs) There is no way the church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of distance. So that distance we feel between us and God when we look at who Christ is and trying to follow that standard. This is a gospel of grand expectations, but God's grace is sufficient for each of us. Yes. Yes, and I love the way he has written that because many Christians, instead of looking at grace as a power to help us, often see grace as some sort of lowering of God's expectations. But I teach that lowered expectations are not grace. Grace is the presence of his power to be able to meet those expectations. One minister one time came to our university and he was speaking and said, Jesus came not to show us how to live, but to save us, no matter how we live. And as he said that, I mean, I'm sure his words were meant to be helpful, but to me, it seemed very sad because it was like, hey, Jesus saved us, so just party on. I think that that's a a false and incomplete view of grace that many carry with them. Instead, I think we need to be able to recognize that grace is the presence of God's power to help us live as he lived, to help us become as he is, to help us be more like him, and that Jesus didn't just come to save us, but he did come to show us a way but also to give us the grace that he knew would be needed because while he lived flawlessly, he knew we couldn't. And so it's through his grace that we are able to start this process of perfection. Now, some people get uptight when we talk about perfection because they say, oh, that expectation is too unrealistic. And it is if you think about immediate perfection. That's what justice demands, immediate perfection or a punishment if that perfection is not reached. Jesus took that punishment, and that allows him to expect eventual perfection. 
and not alone, not on our own, but with him there to tutor, to help, to teach, to mentor us through that process. And I think that gives a a larger, more complete view of grace. We're hearing from you at a point where you have had time and cause to consider this, both for yourself, but for young people that you've worked with over the years, well, young people and adults. But was this something that you wrestled with or came to along the road, or was it explicitly taught to you as a young person? Did you absorb it that way? No, it was never explicitly taught to me. In fact, anything that had been explicitly taught, if grace had been mentioned at all, it was usually taught in this idea that we have to do all we can do and then somehow grace would help us. Which is almost like that. Once I get this fixed, I'll exactly I'll open up. And, you know, it's nice to know you don't have to do it all. But if you say you have to do your best, whew, for some people, the best is just as impossible as the all. And so either way, it leaves people feeling like there's no way they can qualify for God's help. And I think that... That was the thing that made me start thinking. I mentioned earlier about how young people would come, and I thought, we're teaching this wrong. It's not that grace isn't a part of our doctrine. It's that we're teaching it in a way that is not bringing hope. And if we're teaching about Jesus Christ's atonement and we're not feeling hope, then something's wrong, (laughs) because that's what it's all about. And so I started thinking, how can we teach this in a way that will bring a sense of empowerment and hope? Because the doctrine is there, but how can we teach it? And I think by shifting away from metaphors that dealt with earning and shifting to metaphors that dealt with learning, that was key for me in my own understanding, and that has helped me be able to teach many others. In the talk, I do share an example of a child practicing the piano, and I think that idea of learning helps people understand Jesus's motives and Jesus's willingness more than these metaphors we've had in the past about buying things or paying for things or paying a debt. No one expects a child to sit down and start playing the Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. Now, we know it's in the realm of possibility if... Although, Steve, you are a very talented (laughs) musician, and you probably did. (laughs) Actually, still struggling on that account. uh... No, but I, I see what you're saying. That allows us to be able to say, hey, this first grader is going to need to tie his shoes quite a few times before he gets it right. This second grader is going to need to learn a lot of things before he he can read fluently. And this kid learning to play the piano is going to need to make a lot of mistakes. And in that process, if we recognize it as a process, we are more willing to be coaches rather than critics. And we start seeing God and Christ as coaches in that process, rather than judges who are just waiting for their moment Mm. to be able to condemn us. And somehow, I think there are teachings that get us into the, you share this piano metaphor, and then I'm going to quote you in the paragraph here, in all of these cases, talking about falling short 
in things we had hoped to be able to do. There should never be just two options, perfection or giving up. When learning the piano, are the only options performing at Carnegie Hall or quitting? No, growth and development take time. Learning takes time. Yeah. Well, think about playing basketball. You're going to make a lot of shots. It's not just a one-time, you know, get the three points from a three-point line. Um, it's not... Some of us can't even get it to the best. <laughs> you expect that there's going to be lots of shots. And with a child practicing, you're going to expect a lot of missed notes. But that doesn't mean that the child's doing it wrong. It simply means that he's learning. That's the blessing of grace. I have told young people that receiving grace from Christ is like receiving a scholarship. It doesn't guarantee learning. It doesn't guarantee graduation, but it facilitates it. Now, we've all seen people who receive a scholarship and waste it. They don't receive the gift. Grace is an unearned, unmerited gift, but it has to be received just like a scholarship has to be received. And the one giving the scholarship doesn't want to get paid back. And the one giving the scholarship simply wants to see it utilized and see Mm. the child be able to, or the young person be able to use what he's given to lift himself to a higher, more educated, happier level. Again, with that learning idea in mind, then we don't think of it as a savings account. I got to work really hard, put all my money in the savings account so that I can be educated, so that I can go to school. We recognize it as a gift, but a gift that needs to be used. That's how we honor Christ. Some people say, oh, well, he gave us this as a gift. So then you stop and say, well, if it's a gift, the best way we can thank him is to utilize the gift. Think of gifts you've received, you know, sweaters maybe from a grandma or a fruitcake from an aunt, and you smile and say thank you, and then you toss them out or you never wear them because you think, I don't value this. As we use Christ's grace to be changed, then we value it. We show that we appreciate it, and we welcome more and more of it into our lives. After you gave this address, when did you know that you had hit a nerve or addressed a topic in a way that was resonating with people and that they were trying to connect with this? I think some of it was initial. Several people came up that very day and thanked me and said that the talk had helped them. Some of it was later as the talk was published, as it was shared on social media. And I started realizing that somehow this had been a teaching that had been missed by a lot of people. The talk has been well-received by Latter-day Saints, but it has also been well-received by many other Christians and ministers who have contacted me and said how much this has helped them as they teach about grace. So it's been encouraging. I've loved having people tell me how it's helped in their own lives, and I've loved having people tell me that it's helped them as they've tried to teach others about grace and give them this hopeful perspective. You know, a teaching, unless it bears fruit, is not really useful, I think. 
And it's been interesting to read even of research showing that it makes a difference if people have an understanding of God's grace. Yeah. We live in a time, Steve, that's scary because so many people are dealing with depression, with anxiety, even suicidal tendencies and thoughts. There's hardly a day that goes by that we don't see something in the news or something on the internet about these struggles. And we sometimes wring our hands and say, what can we do? What can we do? But it is encouraging to know that one thing we can do is teach the doctrine of grace. One study that was done recently that was published in a journal of psychology of religion and spirituality talks about how when young people understand grace, it leads to lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of perfectionism, lower levels of scrupulosity or that feeling that you continually need to confess. It makes a difference. And, and this was a survey of people who qualified themselves as or self-described as religious. Yes, over 600 young people. And it showed that as they came to an understanding of grace, as we've been describing it today, and not just trying to erase the distance between God and us, trying to pretend it's not there, trying to pretend his commandments are suggestions. A lot of people try to deal with depression and anxiety in that way by saying, well, you don't need to do anything and you don't need to be better. You don't need to try to improve. But as they understand grace, then they realize they're not in it alone. And I think that's what people need to know, is not that there's no expectations. Any parent who has a baby has expectations. We love that baby just the way he is, but we want him to learn to read. We want him to learn to write. We want him to learn to walk. And I think God has expectations of us. And his grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card or a note from the doctor that says you don't have to play in the game. Rather, it's him being willing to help us as we go through this endeavor. That's what I think brings hope, is when they have that understanding, it does lead to improved feelings of assurance and capability and hope and a bright future. And that's powerful. Because some people say, oh, no, religion is the source of depression. It's the source of all these feelings of guilt. But according to this study and many others, not only does religion help and not hurt, but that the doctrine of grace specifically makes us a difference, a real difference. I've seen that anecdotally. I've seen that in the lives of many. Dr. Brad Wilcox is a professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University, a speaker for various youth and adult education programs. He's the author of The Continuous Atonement, and we've been speaking about a devotional address he gave at Brigham Young University in 2011, His Grace is Sufficient. Brad, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It's always a joy to be with you. Today on Finding Center, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Brad Wilcox, from the BYU Department of Ancient Scripture. Now we'll hear his BYU campus devotional address, His Grace is Sufficient. It was given July 12, 2011. 
Professor Wilcox teaches courses in literacy in the teacher education department. He also enjoys teaching a mission preparation class on campus. When Professor Wilcox is not teaching, he enjoys traveling, writing, and working with continuing education programs, such as Especially for Youth and Campus Education Week. Brother Wilcox served as president of the Chile-Santiago East Mission from 2003 to 2006 and currently serves as a member of the Sunday School General Board. He is the author of The Continuous Atonement. He and his wife, Debbie, are the parents of four children and have three grandchildren. And now we'll have the opportunity of hearing from Brother Brad Wilcox. Thank you, Sister Sharman, for that introduction. I'm grateful to be able to be here today with my wife, Debbie, and with my two youngest who are attending BYU and several other family members who have come to be with us today. It's an honor to be invited to speak to you today. Several years ago, I received an invitation to speak at Women's Conference. And when I told my wife, she asked, well, what have they asked you to speak on? Well, I was so excited that I kind of got my words mixed up, and I said, they want me to speak about changing strengths into weaknesses. (laughs) Well, she thought about that for a minute, and then finally she looked at me and she said, they've got the right man for the job. (laughs) And she's correct about that. I could give a whale of a talk on that subject, but I think we better go back to the original topic. today and speak about changing weaknesses into strengths and how the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient, sufficient to cover us, sufficient to transform us, and sufficient to help us as long as that transformation process takes. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover us. A BYU student once asked if we could talk. I said, of course. How can I help you? She said, I just don't get grace. I responded, well, what is it that you don't understand? And she said, I know that I have to do my best, and then Jesus does the rest, but I can't even do my best. She then went on to tell me all the things that she should be doing, because she's a Mormon. But she wasn't doing them. She continued, I know that I have to do my part, and then Jesus makes up the difference and fills the gap that stands between my part and perfection. But, she asks, who fills the gap that stands between where I am now and my part? She then went on to tell me all the things that she shouldn't be doing, because she's a Mormon, but she was doing them anyway. Finally, I said, Jesus doesn't make up the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. Grace is not about filling gaps. It is about filling us. Now, seeing that she was still confused, I took a piece of paper and I drew two dots, one at the top representing God and one at the bottom representing us. And then I said, go ahead, draw the line. How much is our part? How much is Christ's part? Well, she went right to the center of the page and began drawing a line. Then, considering what we'd been talking about, she went clear to the bottom and right above the bottom dot, she drew a line. And I said, Wrong. 
And she said, oh, I knew it was higher. I knew it. Why didn't I just draw it? Because I knew it. And I said, no. I said, truth is, there is no line. Jesus filled that whole space. He paid our debt in full. He didn't pay it all except for a few coins. He paid it all. It is finished. She said, oh, right. Like I don't have to do anything? I said, oh, no, you've got plenty to do. <laughs> but it is not to fill that gap. We will all be resurrected. We will all go back to God's presence. What is left to be determined by our obedience is what kind of body we plan on being resurrected with and how comfortable we plan to be in God's presence, how long we plan to stay there. Christ asks us to show faith in him, repent, make and keep covenants, receive the Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. By complying, we are not paying the demands of justice, not even the smallest part. Instead, we are showing appreciation for what Christ did by using it to live a life like His. Justice requires immediate perfection or a punishment when we fall short. Because Jesus took that punishment, He can offer us the chance for ultimate perfection, and He can help us reach that goal. He can forgive what justice never could, and He can turn to us now and make another arrangement. He can give us his own set of requirements. So what's the difference, the girl asked. I mean, whether our efforts are required by justice or whether they're required by Jesus, they're still required. True, I said, but they're required for a different purpose. Fulfilling Christ's requirements is like paying a mortgage instead of rent making deposits in a savings account instead of paying off debt. You still have to hand it over every month, but it is for a totally different reason. Christ's grace is sufficient to transform us. Christ's arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for her child. Mom pays the piano teacher. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yep, look at all those hands. Because mom pays the debt in full, she can turn to her child and ask for something. What is it? Everybody in a big voice. Practice. Oh, you knew that answer. Practice, practice. Now, does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Well, does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It is how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used, seeing her child improve. And so she continues to call for practice, practice practice. Now, if the child sees mom's requirement of practice as being too overbearing, gosh, mom, why do I need to practice? 
none of the other kids need, none of them practice, and I'm just going to be a professional baseball player anyway. <laughs> Maybe it's just because that child doesn't yet see with mom's eyes. He doesn't see how much better his life could be if he would choose to live it on a higher plane. Now in the same way, because Jesus has paid justice, he can now turn to us and say, follow me, keep my commandments. If we see his requirements as being way too much to ask, gosh, none of the other Christians have to pay tithing. Gosh, none of the other Christians have to go on missions. They don't have to do temple work. They don't have to serve in callings. See, maybe we don't yet see through Christ's eyes. Maybe we have not yet comprehended what he is trying to make of us. Elder Bruce C. Hafen has written, The great mediator asks for our repentance, not because we must repay him in exchange for his paying our debt to justice, but because repentance initiates a developmental process that with the Savior's help leads us along the path to a saintly character. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has said, The repenting sinner must suffer for his sins. But this suffering has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Now let's put that in terms of our analogy. The child must practice the piano. But this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. I have born-again Christian friends who say to me, You Mormons are trying to earn your way to heaven. I say, No. We are not earning heaven. We are learning heaven. We are preparing for it. We're practicing for it. They ask me, Well, have you been saved by grace? And I say, Yes, absolutely. Totally, completely, thankfully, yes. And then I ask them a question that perhaps they have not fully considered. Have you been changed by grace? They are so excited about being saved that maybe they are not thinking enough about what comes next. They are so happy the debt is paid, they might not have considered why the debt existed in the first place. Latter-day Saints know not only what Jesus has saved us from, but what he has saved us for. As my friend Brett Sanders puts it, a life impacted by grace eventually begins to look like Christ's life. As my friend Omar Canals puts it, while many Christians view Christ's suffering as only a huge favor he did for us, Latter-day Saints also recognize it as a huge investment he made in us. As Moroni puts it in chapter 7, verse 48, grace isn't just about being saved. It is about becoming like the Savior. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can live after we die, but that we can live 
more abundantly. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can be cleansed and consoled, but that we can be transformed. Scriptures make it clear that no unclean thing can dwell with God. But brothers and sisters, no unchanged thing will even want to. I know a young man who just got out of prison again. Every time two roads diverge in a yellow wood, he takes the wrong one. Every time. Now, when he was a young teenager struggling with every bad habit that a young teenage boy can have, I said to his father, we need to get him to EFY. I've worked with that program since 1985. I know the good that it can do. I said, we've got to get him to EFY. Well, his dad says, I can't afford that. I said, I can't afford it either, but you put some in and I'll put some in and then we'll go to my mom because she's a real softie. And, um, <laughs> and we finally got him to EFY. But how long do you think he lasted? Not even a day. By the end of the first day, he called his mother and he said, Get me out of here. Heaven will not be heaven for those who have not chosen to be heavenly. In the past, I always had a picture in my mind of what the final judgment would be like. And it always went something like this. Jesus standing there with a clipboard. Brad standing across the room, nervously looking at Jesus. Jesus looking at his clipboard and saying, Oh, shoot. <laughs> I mean, Brad, oh, you missed it by two points. <laughs> you know, Brad begging Jesus, please look at the essay question one more time. <laughs> There's got to be two points you can squeeze out of that essay. Now, that's how I always saw it. But as I get older, and as I come to a better understanding of the plan of redemption, then the more I realize in the final judgment it will not be the unrepentant sinner begging Jesus, let me stay, let me stay. No. He will probably be saying, get me out of here. Knowing Christ's character, I believe that if anyone is going to be begging on that occasion, it will probably be Jesus, begging the unrepentant sinner, please choose to stay. Please use my atonement, not just to be cleansed, but to be changed so that you want to stay. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can go home, but that miraculously we can feel at home there. If Christ did not require faith and repentance, then there would be no desire to change. Think of your friends and your family members who have chosen to live without faith and repentance. They don't want to change. 
They're not trying to abandon sin and become comfortable with God. Rather, they are trying to abandon God and become comfortable with sin. If Jesus did not require covenants and bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost, then there would be no way to change. We would be left forever with willpower and have no access to His power. If Jesus did not require endurance to the end, then there would be no internalization of those changes over time. They would forever be surface and cosmetic rather than sinking inside of us and becoming part of who we are. Put simply, if Jesus did not require practice, then we would never become pianists. Christ's grace is sufficient to help us in that process. Brother Wilcox, I mean, don't you realize how hard practice is? I mean, I'm just not very good at the piano. I hit a lot of wrong notes, and it takes me forever to get it right. Now wait, isn't that all part of the learning process? When a young pianist hits a wrong note, we don't say he is not worthy to keep practicing. We don't say that. We don't expect him to be flawless. We just expect him to keep trying. Perfection may be his ultimate goal, but for now, we can be content with progress in the right direction. Why is this perspective so easy to see in the context of learning piano? but so hard to see in the context of learning heaven. Too many are giving up on the church because they are tired of constantly feeling like they are falling short. Oh, they've tried in the past, but always feel like they are just not good enough. They don't understand grace. There are young women who know they are daughters of a Heavenly Father who loves them, and they love Him, then they graduate from high school. <laughs> and the values that they memorized are put to the test. They slip up. They let things go just a little too far. And suddenly they think it's all over. These young women don't understand grace. There are young men who grow up their whole lives singing, I hope they call me on a mission. And then they actually do grow a foot or two. And they flake out completely. They just flake out. Oh, they get their eagles. They graduate from high school. They go away to college. Then suddenly these young men find out, how easy it is to not be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, or reverent. <laughs> they mess up. So they say, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, well, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, this is stupid. I will never do it again. And then they do it. 
the guilt is almost unbearable. Oh, they don't dare talk to a bishop. Instead, they hide. And they say, I can't do this Mormon thing. I've tried. The expectations are just way too high. So they quit. These young men don't understand grace. I know returned missionaries who come home and slip back into bad habits they thought were over. They break promises they made before God, angels, and witnesses. And they're convinced that there's no hope for them now. They say, oh, I've blown it. I mean, there's no use in even trying anymore. Seriously? I mean, these young people have spent entire missions teaching people about the atonement of Jesus Christ. And now they feel like there is no hope for them. Those returned missionaries don't understand grace. I know young married couples who find out after the sealing ceremony is over that marriage requires adjustments. The pressures of life mount and stress starts taking its toll financially, spiritually, and even sexually. Mistakes are made. Walls go up. And pretty soon these husbands and wives are talking with divorce lawyers rather than talking with each other. These couples don't understand grace. In all of these cases, there should never be just two options, perfection or giving up. When learning the piano, are the only options performing at Carnegie Hall or quitting? No. Growth and development take time. Learning takes time. When we understand grace, we understand that God is long-suffering, that change is a process, and repentance is a pattern in our lives. When we understand grace, we understand that the blessings of Christ's atonement are continuous, and His strength is perfect in our weakness. When we understand grace, we can, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, continue in patience until we are perfected. One young man wrote me the following email. I know God has all power, and I know He will help me if I'm worthy. But I'm just never worthy enough to ask for His help. I want Christ's grace, but I always find myself stuck in the same self-defeating and impossible position. No work, no grace. I wrote him back and testified with all my heart that Christ is not waiting at the finish line once we have done all we can do. He is with us every step of the way. Elder Bruce C. Hafen has written, The Savior's gift of grace to us is not necessarily limited in time to after all we can do. We may receive His grace before, during, and after the time when we expend our own efforts. So grace is not a booster engine that kicks in once our fuel supply is exhausted. Rather, it is our constant energy source. 
It is not the light at the end of the tunnel, but the light that moves us through the tunnel. Grace is not achieved somewhere down the road. It is received right here and right now. It is not a finishing touch, but the finisher's touch. In 12 days, we celebrate Pioneer Day. The first company of saints entered the Salt Lake Valley on July 24, 1847. Their journey was difficult and challenging. Still they sang, Come, come ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. What an interesting phrase. We have sung that song hundreds of times. But have we ever stopped to consider what it means? Grace shall be as your day. Grace shall be like a day. As dark as night may become, we can always count on the sun coming up. As dark as our trials, sins, and mistakes may appear, we can always have confidence in the grace of Jesus Christ. Do we earn a sunrise? No. Do we have to be worthy of a chance to begin again? No. We just have to accept these blessings and take advantage of them. As sure as each brand new day, grace, the enabling power of Jesus Christ, is constant. Faithful pioneers knew they were not alone. The task ahead of them was never as great as the power behind them. In conclusion, I reiterate that the grace of Christ is sufficient. Sufficient to cover our debt. Sufficient to transform us. And sufficient to help us as long as that transformation process takes. The Book of Mormon teaches us to rely solely on the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we do, we do not discover, as some Christians believe, that Christ requires nothing of us. Rather, we discover the reason He requires so much and the strength to do all He asks. Grace is not the absence of God's high expectations. Grace is the presence of God's power. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once said the following, Now may I speak to those buffeted by false insecurities, who, though laboring devotedly in the kingdom, have reoccurring feelings of falling forever short. This feeling of inadequacy is normal. 
There is no way the church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of immense distance. This is a gospel of grand expectations. But God's grace is sufficient for each of us. With Elder Maxwell, I testify that God's grace is sufficient. Jesus' grace is sufficient. It is enough. It is all we need. Oh, young people, don't quit. You keep trying. Don't look for excuses and escapes. Look for the Lord and his perfect strength. Don't search for someone to blame. Search for someone to help you. Seek Christ. And as you do, I promise you will feel the enabling power we call His amazing grace. I leave this testimony and all of my love, for I do love you. As God is my witness, I love the youth of this church. I believe in you. I'm pulling for you. And I'm not the only one. Parents are pulling for you. Leaders are pulling for you. Prophets are pulling for you. And Jesus is pulling with you. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday at 11 a.m. Mountain, 1 Eastern, for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today we heard an interview with Dr. Brad Wilcox, followed by his BYU campus devotional address, His Grace is Sufficient. Find a link to the full text, audio, and video of this address at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.